0: Uh, the Carver Barnes Lectures this year uh, are co-sponsored not only by the Bush Center for Faith and Culture, but also by the Drummond Center uh, for Great Commission Studies. And so, uh, as a result, uh, I think I think especially for this topic that we have at hand, it only makes sense that Dr. Hildreth would be the one who would lead in the Q and A. Um, Dr. Woodbury, as I said, spoke last night on the world that missionaries made, and I've asked him just to take a few minutes. Uh, to kind of give us a brief uh, thesis and summary of what he what he spoke on last night, so those who were not able to attend the lecture <coughs> can be brought up to speed. Uh, he has um, uh, he has a fascinating background, and and so Scott is going to talk to him m- about more things like that. But uh, Dr. Woodbury, so good to have you here, Thanks. and uh, <coughs> remind us once again what your talk last <coughs> night was about.
1: Okay, um, I basically. Uh, look at the influence that uh, Christianity, and particularly Protestantism, has had on um, political and economic situations around the world. And although I didn't emphasize this as much last night, I show in Europe how the spread of Protestantism had this effect on education and printing and voluntary associations and other things like that which had economic and political consequences in Europe. And then I use uh, Protestant and Catholic missionaries like a natural experiment. So in Europe, people say, oh, it wasn't really Protestantism. Protestantism spread in contexts where there was already these things that would eventually lead to democracy and economic development. Um, <clears throat> but those things, factors like land tenure system and the aristocracy and things like that, didn't shape where missionaries went. And so when, I, when you look at the spread of Protestant missionaries, you see exactly the same process. They are pioneering mass education education in the vernacular, education for poor people, education for women. They're pioneering um, printing where it doesn't exist or mass printing, transferring printing where it does exist into mass printing, um, introducing newspapers, etc., introducing voluntary associations, which have these profound economic and political consequences for the places that they go. <clears throat> then I not only show that historically, um, in terms of that they are the people who pioneer these things, but also that then other people copy them, and so you get this multiplier effect that where missionaries try and convert people using printing, for example, then other people print, and you get this expansion of printing over time to other religious groups as well as mass education. And then I try and measure the effect of that um, over time in multiple different ways, and I show that where you had uh, longer and uh, more, more, more missionaries per capita, and a longer period of Protestant missionary activity, you have more economic development, you have better health, you have more uh, education, you have more political democracy, you have lower corruption, um, various things like that. And I do various ways to try and show that this is a causal thing, that they didn't just go to places that were already better. Um, And I do that by looking at change through time, looking at, Controlling for the level of economic development, for example, before they arrive, or the level of education before they arrive, Um, and then looking at change, Um, and various natural experiments, like there's be these arbitrary borders that missionaries are not not allowed to cross, Um, and then just looking 10 kilometers north and south of that border, which no longer exists, and showing that you have measurable differences, Um, et cetera. So I do all these ways to try and isolate the effect of what missionaries did versus the effect of why they went to that place. And I find there's a very, very strong uh, effect of Protestant missions in particular on long-term development around the world. Well, good.
2: well Dr. Woodbury, I appreciate you being <coughs> here. Your mm-hmm. topic is incredibly fascinating to me. We first read, uh, I've read some of your work, read about your work in Christianity Today, of course the Perspectives reader, the article that you have in mm-hmm. there. So I'm just curious, what led you to be interested in this type of thing at all? It's not something that someone accidentally stumbles on in a secular university like mm-hmm. Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. So w- why this topic and, and what mm. has led you in this pathway?
1: Uh, well, <clears throat> my parents were missionaries in Pakistan and then they had the international congregation in Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. So I grew up being connected to the missionary movement. Um, originally I trained to be a diplomat and then decided not to do that. <clears throat> And uh, I was very interested in church history and other things like that, and I felt like I was called to be professor, um, but I liked figuring out sort of why society was the way that it was, and so I went into the social sciences. I'm making this story brief a little bit. And I was assigned, I I viewed myself as sort of like a comparative historian, um, but I was still mostly doing stuff on the US, and I was assigned to work with a professor who uh, hated Christians and didn't like men and made my life hell for a year. I mean, we were fine for about a month and a half until she found out I was a Christian, and then she yelled at me almost every day for a year. Um, really brutal. Uh, it affected my personality for, for for about two and a half years. Um, it was really brutal. Um, but the head of the department realized that I would gotten really abused, and so made me a special position as the consultant on statistics and methods, which I, um, <coughs> So then my job was to learn statistics and methods really, really well, which I didn't, I mean, I'm good at them, but I didn't like them. I, I just thought they were boring. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I gained this skill, and then I, I, I could go some other stuff, but um, I transferred to, uh, to Chapel Hill, and I was there. Um, and I was doing work on sort of North American religion, which I found pointless because I grew up overseas and I'm like, why am I doing this, God? I felt like you called me into this area and I have no idea why I'm here. I'm just not quitting because I don't want to quit because people are mean. <laughs> I want to quit because I feel like I'm led somewhere. And, <clears throat> and uh, uh, a, a professor named Kim Bolin gave a talk and he said, I've been studying the process of democratization for, um, since the 1970s. And I keep on finding these two factors which seem to be important but everyone ignores. He said the more, the higher percentage Protestant, the more likely you are to be a democratic country and the more stable your democratic transitions are. So if it becomes a democracy, it's more likely to stay a democracy as opposed to flip in and out. And then former British colonies also are on average more democratic and have more stable democratic transitions. And he said, I keep finding these results, so I think they're causal, but no one's really looked to them in detail. They all sort of look at economic development and democracy, education, democracy. So he said, I think someone should look into that and maybe there'll be something that's there. And so I thought, hey, maybe that's me. (laughs) So (coughs) I started to think about uh, how could British colonialism, which they weren't out there trying to do good things for the world. They were trying to have power and make money, and they were willing to do some really violent abusive things in order to get that. Um, so why did it end up having these seemingly beneficial effects? And if something like Christianity or Protestantism was influencing democracy, how would it happen? And it wouldn't be like over five years, it would be over a long period of time. It's not like, oh, I'll become Protestant, therefore like my whole political system changes, or, or like I totally changed what I thought before. I mean, it's a gradual process. So I was like, how do I get old data about religion and so I can look at it? <clears throat> so I started looking on the internet, and I found the source called the World Missionary Atlas, um, and so I went into the rare book collection in the basement of uh, one of the buildings at UNC Chapel Hill, and I pulled out this book, and I was like, wow. That is why God made me.
3: Um,
1: it had, the, it had uh, the atlas of the entire world showing all the mission stations, and then it had data on what was all the mission stations and all this data about education and printing and everything from all around the world from 1923. And then it referred to another one from 1916, which referred to another one from 1911, which referred to another one from 1903, and pretty soon like I have all this data about missionaries and the exact longitude and latitude of all these things that they're doing, which I thought, well, then I can measure it. I, I don't know how long I you want. I mean, it, keep, it keeps going, it's crazy. But do um, We're pretty do you, crazy people. Okay, That's do you easy. want, do you want, okay. <laughs> So I was like, wow, because I was like, okay, I trained to be a diplomat, like all my training on political science, politics and economic development, like I read all this missions history and church history, I love that. It has a historical cross, comparative historical thing. It combines all my statistical ability that I learned because someone like, was a jerk. Yeah. <coughs> and, <coughs> and all these different things, I felt like they came together where I could do something that was really unique and really fit who I am yeah. as a person, who God made me to be, and who God had shaped me through time through some really abusive experiences of yeah. other things, which I could go into more if, I wanted to, if you wanted me to. but um, <clears throat> So I felt like, wow. And so I thought, but this is way too big for me to handle as an individual person. Um, it's just I could never handle all this kind of data and stuff all my, by myself. So um, I thought I'll do a small part, part of this, like the historical part for my dissertation. Um, well, then I went to a conference and I was presenting a paper about something else, comparative sto- temperance movements. And, um, and this professor really liked my talk and invited me to coffee, and she's saying, like, this is great stuff, Bob. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, but what I'm really interested in this stuff on missions and like, you know, like this, and all like all this thing that I'm making, my and she's like, wow, Bob, that's amazing. You should apply for a Louisville grant, one of these kinds of grants. And I was like, no, I've looked at every grant I could possibly apply to as a graduate student, and they're like $1,000 or $500 or $200. I mean, I need a, some serious cash to, d- to enter this kind of data. She's like, and, and, and I've looked at the, the, the Louisville grant. I need to have a PhD. I need to have an academic position. And it's only for people who study North American religion. And I'm like, this, I don't have a PhD. I don't have an academic position. And this is about religion everywhere else, basically, mostly. Um, and she's like, Bob, I'm on the board. <laughs> <laughs> So then I got this letter from the head of the board, and he said, we've never funded a graduate student before, but we've heard good things about your work. Um, We encourage you to apply, just frame it in terms of North American religion. So I um, wrote a letter, wrote a proposal, and I said, you know, if we want to understand the North American church, we need to understand how they spent their money, and how they sent their personnel, and whether what their goals met were actually met, and what were the implications of what they did. And they gave me. About $30,000 as a graduate student to hire other graduate students to help me with my work and undergrads. So, like, I had all this data entry thing, like, I didn't have an office. Like, I'm a, I didn't even have an office. So, like, all these books, I hide them under the, on the shelves underneath the desks where the computers are in the computer room. And my research assistants have to, like, climb under the tables and get out these books, and then they're entering data. I mean, it was like, you know, that kind of thing. Then, like, I'm about to graduate. I have my first sort of presentation I'm gonna go to this conference and present on, and one week before the conference, um, uh, (coughs) I get this desperate email, like, we had the person cancel who was gonna comment on this paper by Robert Barrow, who's a very famous economist at Harvard, um, who's, everyone says, will win the Nobel Prize sooner or later. Um, He's just too young to win it yet. They're letting older people get it first because you can't get it after you die. Um, So uh, he was giving this paper about religion and they asked me to respond to it. I'm like, okay. You know, I didn't know what I was getting to. Um, It was awful. He doesn't understand much about religion. I could, yeah, yeah. I could be stronger. Um, And so I was like, wow. I understand why the person backed out. But it was too late to back out. So then I like... I gave my talk, but like, I'm a graduate student, and this is like, you know, superstar guy. Um, So I I tried to be diplomatic, but I just laid out what was wrong with the paper. And um, so at the end of the talk, this person walks down to me. He said, hi, I'm Chuck Harper. I'm the head of the Templeton Foundation. Um, What you said is exactly what is wrong with his work. I have decided I'm not going to fund him anymore unless mm-hmm. he works with you. I've been giving him several million dollars a year, and I'm not going to fund him anymore unless he works with you. Which only made him hate me, but, um, <coughs> uh, but anyways, I was like, oh, okay, well, okay uh, uh, did, did you want to come to my talk at the next session? So he came to my talk, he liked it, um, there, also, there was like Gary Becker who was a Nobel Prize-winning economist who was there, and he really liked it. So, like, they, they, like they all really liked my paper, and so he was like, "This is amazing. We need to get you in part of this spiritual capital project." With this, is you know, we're funding this research about r- religion and economic development. And I was like, "Okay." So they invited me to be part of this group of four people that won Nobel prizes. Like, it was just like this elite group of people and me, graduate student guy. Um, <laughs> And uh, invited me to apply for a grant, and they gave me a half million dollars uh, right out of graduate school. <laughs> so then I had a team of about 50 people who were entering all this data and making this global database on missionaries, um, and entered it. Um, and, but that, in some ways it was good, and in some ways it was bad, because it took so much time to manage 50 people for about three years, um, which put me back a little bit on publishing. Now I have this amazing database. but. Um, uh, <clears throat> and then publishing this stuff is amazingly hard. Mm. So, and because there's so much hostility that, uh, that there's sort of the basic gut reaction to what I do in, in my field. Um, so the level of scrutiny they put me through is just crazily high. And so I wasn't able to get my major things published before I went up for tenure. I didn't get tenure. So that's why I went to NUS, Chapel Hill. I mean, I went to um, National University of Singapore. Um, anyways that's a long version but like God really provided for me in a lot of ways where like I wasn't out there sort of beating the bushes trying to get to make a friendship with this guy and like do you know like be a puppy and or something to try and get this stuff I mean God took care of me and
2: you know you've said several times in this talk and then last night at dinner you've made a, a strong emphasis on the fact that you have a calling to this, mm-hmm. to academia, calling to this research.
1: Yeah,
2: um, can you unpack for us a little bit? This is as, as, as we think about calling to academia, calling to scholarship, calling to mission. Um, mm-hmm. How do you understand calling, and how has that affected what you do, how you do it, and that type of thing?
1: <clears throat> um, well, that's a big topic. Well. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that you could do that would be faithful to what God wants you. I don't think always, sometimes God has maybe a specific thing that God wants you to do. Um, Often it's sort of a range of things like within this boundaries, you're within God's calling. Um, But sometimes I think there's specific things that God wants you to do. And um, I felt that my gifting and what I'm good at um, that I was called to be a professor And within that I wanted to do something that mattered, that my faith, that that, that as a Christian, as a person who grew up overseas, as a person who is the way that I am, that I'm doing something that isn't just a photocopy of someone else who was not a Christian or isn't from my background would do. Otherwise feel I was wasting who God has made me to be. And so I'm always thinking about like what, As the person I am, and in the place where I am, what should I be doing that's different from what someone who's different from me should be doing? Um, And so then, like when I found this topic about missions, which integrated so many things of of who I am, it felt very much like God had um, orchestrated this. I mean, he had a lot of bad experiences that happened to me, only one of which I told you about, um, that shaped me to go to a particular place in a particular time and have particular types of skills um, which allow me to do this that someone else couldn't do and which I could not have done if I had not gone through those things, um, which at the time I had no idea why I'm getting all this abuse. Um, And it certainly was not fun, but it made me the type of person who had the skills and was in a the, in the particular location where I was able to find and do this work.
2: Sure, you know your work is is um, it's casting really the the missionary enterprise in a different light right. than it has been described in probably the past 50 or 60, 70 sure. years. <laughs> right. um, you mentioned last night Michener's Hawaii and mm-hmm. then the Poisonwood Bible and the mm-hmm. negative um, spin, but are you seeing or from your vantage point um, how are people responding to uh, what you're saying about, hey, mission, the missionary enterprise isn't, isn't the way that we've painted it. Is it mm-hmm. How's it being received m- perhaps in academia, in the, in the secular world, and how's it being received perhaps in the, in the more <clears throat> evangelical world, and how, do you, how would you like to see it move forward in that?
1: Um, well, some of that has changed over time. When I first started doing this, um, I quite literally would have people stand up in the middle of my talk and start yelling at me. Wow. I had that happen more than one occasion, mm-hmm. very prominent. I mean, people like Emmanuel Wallerstein, who's a very, very famous social scientist, one of the most famous people. Um, World systems theory, when I was giving a talk at Yale, uh, for example. Um, Over time, I've provided so much evidence that the attitude is starting to change. Um, And now you have literally dozens of people at really, really top universities who are now studying missionaries. Mostly economists, but some political scientists, and a few sociologists. So there's a bunch of people at Harvard, at Boston University, at Stanford, (laughs) at Princeton, at Yale, at uh, Oxford, at Science Po, at Beijing University, at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, Penn State, um, Florida State, uh, who are all researching the social impact of missionaries now. Most of them are secular or some are Catholic. I don't know of any Protestants, practicing Protestants who are doing it. But I've shown that like missions has these big effects. Sure. So now they're going, oh wow, that, those are really huge effects. They seem to really matter. And there's all these people who are now working on them. Some of the things I cited last night are by other these scholars who are, they're totally sure. s- secular. So I mean the reaction is depends on who and when and how. So like still sometimes when I present my work, people just think, oh I, oh you're biased because you're Christian and then they don't take it seriously even though I've, I have so much evidence and I've been so, 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 so careful. Um, but it becomes harder the more people who do it and the more, like with me, they, I am a Christian, I'm openly a Christian and people know that. but. Um, uh, with other people, they can't accuse them of just doing it because they're, they're a Christian. But I mean, you, for example, this is just one example, sure. but it happens all the time. Um, I published this article in the American Political Science Review, which is the best journal in political science. Um, a paper that had 192 pages of supporting material, plus other kinds of things, which is just craziness, what they put me through. Um, it won. You should probably tell just
2: maybe a 30-second snippet of that story. You told it last night, but I don't think everyone heard that you... Submitted the article, they sent it back, said prove it. You had to submit.
1: Okay, yeah. well. <clears throat> you are going with the rest of your story. <coughs> I think some of these guys will appreciate that. Well, there's, there's actually another round I didn't even talk about. <laughs> um, well, this will show you the craziness that I go through in terms of publishing this stuff. I submitted it to the American Sociological Review because at the time I was in sociology. That's what my training is and Now I'm in political science. Um, uh, they took eight and a half months to get my reviews back to me. The first reviewer said, this is one of the most important articles I have read in many, many years. It is outstanding. Even how he measures colonialism is way ahead of anyone else in the field. It's entirely original. It's not even on anyone's radar screen, blah, 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 outstanding review. Second reviewer, this makes me angry. It is terribly written, and he needs to do case studies. So. He didn't critique any of my history or my statistics. He just said it made him angry and I said I had to do something else. The third reviewer didn't send me any comments. He told the editor, or the editor told me that that reviewer said that my statistics don't say what I say that they say. And I'm like, I'm a statistics professor. <laughs> I, I mean, I teach statistics. I teach them at a decent university, the University of Texas, Austin. So, if it's wrong, it's not something that's obvious, it's something obscure, because I would get the basic stuff. Now it doesn't mean I'm, I'm not perfect, like there's lots of things I don't know, but it's not an obvious thing. So I sent, I sent off my paper to six very, very famous statisticians, including one in the Department of Editors, and all of them said my statistics were great. And I said, can I tell the editor that? And they said, sure. So then I did a couple other things, uh, sort of very complicated, something called instrumenting, I also changed the measure of democracy to show that it was consistent regardless of measure, I sent it back to the editor and I said, look, the only public criticism of my paper is that it, my statistics don't say what I say they say, but these six prominent statisticians all say my statistics are outstanding and they've all said it's okay to tell you and I've done these additional things. And so I would ask either that one thing be publicly critiqued in my statistics, or one thing be publicly critiqued in my history or be put under review again. He said, well, I'm no longer the editor. Um, if you wanna know what's wrong with it, you need to get that information from the new editor. I will forward it to the new editor. So he forwarded it to the new editor. It took a month and a half. And then the new editor wrote me and said, I can't look at this because it's a resubmitted rejected article. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm appealing the decision because nothing got publicly critiqued. All I'm asking is that one thing be publicly critiqued or be put under review again. Um, he said, well, I can't tell you what's wrong with it. If you want that information, you have to write the old editor. (laughs) So so I I forwarded that email to the old editor. The old editor said, and this is a quote, I understand you are upset about the decision, but the decision is final. I will no longer (laughs) communicate with you about this article again. If you want to know what is wrong with it, you must get that information from the new editor. So I'm like, well, no one's willing to tell me what's wrong with my article. They just don't like the conclusion. So I had to rewrite it for the American Political Science Review, which is the best journal in political science, which took a while because I had to reduce it from a 64-page article down to a 45-page article. Um, I submitted it to them. I got three reviews. (coughs) They didn't critique any of my history or my statistics. They just asked me to do a lot more things. So they asked me to do four case studies, China, India, and two matched case studies from somewhere else in the world. They asked me to show that missions was related to each one of my intervening mechanisms—12 different mechanisms: uh, book pr- publishing, newspaper circulation, blah blah blah. They asked me to show that all my models worked at the subnational level in India. So I digitized all the electoral districts of India and showed that my models worked at the subnational level in India. They—they they said I had to show that um, there was change through time. So I did the models change through time, which I had in the talk yesterday. Um, what else? More. Uh, oh, they had, I had to do an analysis, a detailed analysis at the both cross-national and sub-national level about why missionaries, Protestant Catholic missionaries, went where they went, uh, I don't know more. It was 192 pages, uh, which is basically a book. Um, so I submitted that and I got a conditional accept, not an acceptance. Again, nothing I wrote was critiqued, nothing. Um, the editor just wanted some more. So I went through three rounds with just the editor, and then finally he accepted it. He said, this version is outstanding. I'm proud to accept it in the American Political Science Review, which lasted for one week. Um, So he had his graduate students read it, and they got angry at me and accused me of making up the data. So he revoked the acceptance, which again, I've never heard of anyone doing before. Um, and no one I've talked to has ever heard of happening before. Um, And said that his graduate students had raised serious problems about my data coding, and so I needed to make my data public, I needed to send him my data, I had to send him all my coding rules, I had to send him all my statistical models so that he could rerun them. So he checked all my coding and he reran my models, adding and subtracting variables to see how robust they were, and asked me to add an additional table based on his own runs. And then he accepted it the last afternoon that he was editor of the American Political Science wow. Review. After the fact, it's won eight outstanding article awards. It, the, the article by itself has won more outstanding article awards from the American Political Science Association and the American Sociological Association than any person has won in their entire career. Hmm. Um, so it's done very well after the fact. <laughs> <clears throat> but before the fact, uh, it was It was craziness, sure. and so then, like when you 're on the tenure review process and like trying to get published at like this kind of crazy level, which is what I was doing, um, and you switch to a a, a chair who hates you um, from someone who really loved you um, d- right before you go up, uh, it makes it a little harder and so um like this is this has not been an easy process. Right, it's a journey. You're called to this.
3: Mm-hmm. I <laughs>
1: Let me. Uh, I've
2: got one more question I want to ask, but I just want to open the floor. Does anybody have a question that you'd like to ask Dr. Woodbury about his research, about his method, about his calling, his faith, his upbringing?
0: Questions? Oh, Dr. Dr. Thomas. He's the
2: director of our PhD program, so watch it. <laughs>
1: Uh, First of all, thank you very much for coming. It's great to have you here. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of curious your perspective on why is it exactly do you think that there's so much um, resistance or hostility? Mm -hmm. Is it the charge of bias? Is that one factor or is it broader than that? Um, I think there's multiple different factors. Academia is a pretty secular place, particularly in the social sciences. They're more secular than other areas of academia. Um, And there's a lot of resistance against Christianity in the field, in particular against missions. Uh, There's multiple factors in there. One, I think because they're reacting against Christianity and tend to think it is a bad thing, then they tend to think it's a bad thing in general for everyone. Because um, they would not have, like to have people try and convert them, they think it's a bad thing for other people to have that experience. I think there's also sort of a nationalism and an embarrassment about colonialism and sort of some of the arrogance of the West, which there's some good parts about reacting to that because um, there has been real arrogance and there is real arrogance. Um, so you get sort of nationalist scholarship that's sort of trying to uh, um, uh, sort of whitewash out the, the, the foreign influences, um, but also make them bad or the cause of all the problems, which they're cause of some of the problems. Um, But they also did some good things and they're cause of some of good things as well. So I think there's that reaction. There's also Marxist influence, I think, um, in terms of thinking that religion is sort of just justification for power. Um, And so then it can't be like a positive thing. So there's a a, a concern about sort of making a cultural argument. There's also a, a sort of reaction against dominant Uh, aspects of society, so like if it's European Protestant things that you're saying have this good effect, there's a a sort of a knee-jerk reaction, like we're just encouraging the people who are already too arrogant um, kind kind of thing. There's some real bad things that missionaries did. You can always, if any big group, if you look at enough, you can find some really bad examples. Um, There also tends to be, and things you don't know, you tend to lump everyone together. So, like it lumps colonialism and missionaries all together as if they were just all on the same team, which they weren't they fought each other all the time, quite particularly uh, Protestant missions, um, uh, but some early certainly early Catholic missions, also, but not in the nineteenth century um, so there's some of that I mean there's a whole bunch of reasons, but they tend to think of it as just being a a bad evil thing, um, and so then you're st- measuring it and finding these not only positive results, but very strong positive results, which remove a lot of the things that they have been writing about, which then sort of means their work is uh, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Even if my work is not right, their work is wrong. Like, like statistically, there's, maybe there's something I left out that's causing this missionary effect. Now the fe- missionary effect is so huge it would have to be an incredible, it's, it's, it'd have to be an amazing, crazy thing. But um, at the end, I've at least shown that their work is wrong. Which then makes, like, the, you've invested all this time, in, like, it's really this, and then I'm saying, no, it's not. It, so you get all these reasons for resistance. Um, also, I think anytime you have a really radically new argument, people resist. Um, Any time it forces you to rethink how you think about the world, people resist. And so I'm saying these ideas, In fact, very religious ideas like the idea that everyone has to be able to read the Bible in their own language is an idea that radically transformed the world. Um, And that's what I'm saying. And it's an idea. It's not a class structure. It is a religious idea that very devout religious people spread around the world. And it wasn't the Enlightenment that was spreading that idea around the world. It was conservative missionaries, for the most part. I mean, there's variation in how conservative they were on which, issue, which issues, but um, you, know, the, the, you know, so it, it's not fitting the grand narrative <laughs> that secularization is like the good thing that's causing all these other good things. I'm saying, no, these really devout religious people actually caused a lot of those good things which you think cause, were caused by secularism, and they weren't. Um, you on <clears> their credit. What? You're stealing their credit right. in some way, yeah. So, so like, there's all these reasons why there's resistance to it. Some of which are legitimate, and some of which are not. Um, so, so
2: any other questions? Dr. Yeah, Doctor George. You know, I'm kind of reluctant
4: to ask this question. Then I said a prayer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you might <be> <laughs> This is my question. That is, <clears throat> you mentioned the elite institutions like Yale. Yes. You know and uh, big schools mm-hmm. like uh, Stanford, mm-hmm. Princeton, mm-hmm. and I can understand Chapel Hill mm-hmm. being secular. Mm-hmm. I taught 32 years in the system. But how come seminaries, including Karl Barth Center, mm-hmm. where you have people who give me a clear-cut impression that there is a, you know, feeling of secularism right there, mm-hmm. that center. Yes. Where they should be all reading the Bible and uh, do what the Bible says. Right. It, it annoys me. Right. And I want you to respond.
1: <coughs> well, I think there's at least, well, there's multiple things going on. <coughs> One, I think religious groups are shaped by prestige. So like if people at Harvard think something, then they think, oh, okay, that must be good and like, oh, we're just this little institution, what are we? So, like. You know, maybe we're wrong, and so then we have to, like, you get shaped by elite things. And the people at Harvard don't necessarily know missions that well, or the same level as people at a place like here. So, like, and maybe they're wrong. I mean, they have more prestige, so then that tends to influence things, but maybe they're wrong. Maybe people who know the mission movement quite well are actually more right about it than the people who don't. (laughs) So, but we we, we do get shaped by the things that we hear in popular culture and we do get shaped by the things that are taught at elite institutions because we somehow feel inferior. Um, That's one issue. I also think there's this process that happens among intellectuals in terms of distancing themselves from ordinary people and the more you're in a field where what excellent is is subjective, the more you use symbolic boundaries to symbolize that you are an intellectual. And one of those areas are like in religion or the arts or in humanities, etc., where we s- the dominant community is sort of Christian and has re- particular types of religious ideas. One way you can signal that you are an intellectual is to be different from that and to distance yourself from that to show I'm not one of the common people, I'm an intellectual. And you can symbol that religiously by not being Christian or not being uh, a traditional Christian, being a sort of different type of Christian, um, which people do. Now in a place like Japan or China or et cetera, it's the reverse. So you can be an intellectual and be a Christian in China or in Japan because all the dumb, stupid, ordinary people are Buddhist and Shinto and various things like that. But we're the smart intellectuals and we're a Christian. Um, And in the United States, it's the reverse. So you can be like Hindu, Buddhist, Wicca, whatever, things like that, which in the Enlightenment people have totally rejected. um Because that's cool, because it's not what the ordinary people are. I'm not polluted as being associated with ordinary. So you have this sort of Uh, symbolic boundary work that goes on in terms of how intellectuals construct who an intellectual is, which shapes how things are uh, um, framed among intellectuals. Yeah, are there? One more question?
0: Two, maybe. What would be some applications that the modern missions movement could make from your uh, research? (coughs) (coughs)
1: <coughs> Excuse me <coughs> I would say <coughs> one that it's important to not abandon uh, social service activities, education, um, economic development, other things like that, that those have had a profoundly beneficial effect on society and in the long term are a witness so in the short term, trying to convert someone directly, maybe that you have, you're balancing your time, so, so maybe you convert more people if you just focus on that and you don't also focus on providing for their needs. <clears throat> but long term, what missionaries have done in the past has had such a profoundly measurable, beneficial effect on people's health and income and education and other things like that, that that is itself a witness if it's known which it often is not known. but <clears throat> by, by studying it and like, like demonstrating, you can see like, look, what missionaries have done has had this profound influence on your life conditions, which then speaks, and then also like the suffering like so many missions died. So many missionaries died. Particularly in the early period, like when you look at mortality rates among missionaries in the early 19th century in West Africa, for example, it's like 70% die within five years. It is crazy, 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 and they still went. Okay, they still went, and they went after they knew that. Wow, okay, that is a witness to God. Even though like some of them didn't convert anyone because they died two months into it. Their life and the will, the sacrifice that life speaks now—it speaks to me now, <clears throat> and it should speak to other people now. Um, <clears throat> that is a witness, mm. and so it's not. We often tend to think of our witness too short-term. Our witness extends beyond our life, mm. and God cares about converting people, but he also cares about a broader segment. He cares about human flourishing. And the things that we do that shape human flourishing, God is pleased by, even if no one converts. But then the fact that we care about human flourishing, that we care more, we care about a person beyond just if they're gonna become part of my camp, if you're putting it in a cynical way, that we care about their flourishing is witness and it continues to be witness after we leave and after we die.
2: Do
1: you have Dr. <clears throat> I just want to uh, uh, commend you on your pursuit of excellence and your perseverance um, in the research process. So I'm sitting here thinking, okay, somebody who's that committed um, to stay the course and, and get that research question answered, what's the next question? What's the question? That keeps you up at night now. That you're looking forward to researching <laughs> from this point. <clears throat> A lot of it, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing and getting out some of the work I've already started. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> My argument about printing, I think, is really important. Missionaries and printing and the global spread of printing and the and the consequences. We, that we think are the consequences of printing, but are actually a religious combination with printing technology and this religious idea. Because I can show that where you didn't get Protestants, printing didn't have the same effect. So <clears throat> so in Europe, before Protestantism, and in East Asia that had 800 years for these effects to go on before Protestants arrived, well, before printing in Europe, and way more than 1,000 years before Protestants arrived. You only get nationalism in the 19th century. You only get mass printing and mass literacy and other things like that in the 19th century. Um, And missionaries dominate printing in China and et cetera in East East Asia in the 19th century. Um, Even though they had printing way before Europe did. So that's an important argument. Then a lot of my arguments about economic development and uh, what are called economic institutions. So protection of private property, um, uh, rule of law. Uh, There's huge debates within economics right now about those issues. And I can show that missionaries, both historically and statistically, are very important in that. And so there's this, um, this is maybe too detailed, but there's an an economist named uh, Daron Asimoglu who's at MIT, um, who's an institutional uh, uh, economist who's started to look at missions, but he's really distorted the the missionary data in order to make his argument work, but because I know that, Like His arguments about institutions have shaped the World Bank and USAID and other things like that in terms of democracy promotion around the world, Mm -hmm. in terms of corruption promotion as being the crucial issue that you need to get at in terms of economic development are based a lot on his research and others in his school. But when you bring missionaries into the picture, it actually quite undermines his own work. Um, And so that's the kind of thing that could actually shape World Bank policy. Okay, but also in terms of arguments about religious liberty. One of the things that I think is really crucial, you have all this concern about, okay, it's okay to have religious liberty, meaning like everyone just stays in their own little camp and we have pluralism, but you don't try and change anyone because that's bad. Um, as if secular people don't try and convert people all the time, they do. <clears throat> we, we, we just we, in fact, education is sort of like forced conversion, or not, or at least forced exposure.
3: Proselytizing.
1: Yeah. Proselytizing. <clears throat> so we're teaching people that they have to read these things, they have to listen to our lectures, and we're trying to enlighten them, which is meaning convert, <clears throat> from my standpoint. Anyways, um, <clears throat> get a little, get, I'm getting off track. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> um, so, in terms of religious liberty, protecting the right of conversion and the right of missions, I I think you can show has profound economic and political consequences. When So like in terms of printing, it wasn't that being exposed to printing that mattered. It was the fact that people used printing to try and convert people and then that threatened elites and then they printed. In terms of mass education, it wasn't that people didn't know what a school was in terms of having classes. They knew that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until that was used by missionaries to try and convert people that other people start to do it. So it's this threat of conversion that leads to change and has profound economic and political consequences. And so then I'm arguing, particularly for the poor, poor marginalized communities benefit from religious liberty and because they're the people who are more likely to convert. And then the elites, if they don't respond, if they continue to abuse, if they continue to discriminate, if they continue to not transfer resources to the poor, they're more likely to convert. And then they will lose them. So what happens when they're allowed to convert is it forces them to transfer resources to the poor and help uh, marginalized communities long term. And then part of why you get the restriction on conversion is because elites want to keep control of resources, both religious elites and political elites. And so if you make it hard, if you block missionaries, or if you prevent conversions, it allows you to, to continue to exploit marginalized communities. Um, but most people don't think of conversion having these sort of effects in terms of the effect of the poor on the poorest of the poor. But I can show that empirically Both in terms of individual data on this project I'm working on, but also in terms of missionary stuff. So, I mean, I research things trying to figure out what is true, I'm not trying to make it fit what I want to argue. But the implications of what I'm finding are that when you restrict religious liberty it has a profound influence on the life conditions of the poorest people in your society. And so that people who care about poor people should be advocates of religious liberty for economic reasons, even if they don't give a, you know, I could use a bad word <coughs> um, <clears throat> about religious freedom or about conservative Protestantism or other things like that. If they care about poor people, they should be advocates of religious freedom because it helps poor people. That's why we're Baptists. <laughs> <coughs> mm-hmm.
3: so.
0: Ken, won't you close in prayer? Yes, well, uh, before I pray, I just want to say my thanks to Ooh. Dr. Hildreth for leading in this interview. Won't you join me in giving our thanks to Dr. Woodbury? <clears throat> I think Dr. Woodbury, both your, your work and the way uh, that you went about uh, accomplishing it is a lesson uh, to all of us. So, um, thank you for coming, Uh, let's dismiss in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Father, uh, for your calling on our lives. And I thank you, Father, for how Dr. Woodbury has answered that call, and uh, now his work is a benefit to all of us. I pray, Father, that you would continue to bless. Now, Lord, we thank you for the great commission and the opportunity we have to be on mission with you, for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd glorify yourself uh, through Dr. Woodbury, uh, through all of us. Dismiss us now in Jesus' name, and amen.